Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show on Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week's documentary looks at a dark story of discrimination in Canadian history that affected thousands of people, one you've likely never heard about. Our field investigation has determined that you are a homosexual. How do you respond to this charge? We were interrogated like prisoners of war. You know, we were thrown in the back of a car, driven to this close area, interrogated for hours and hours. My war was within the military, the Canadian Armed Forces. And I remember telling them in one of the interviews, I said, you can't do this. I said, this is Canada. And he looked me in the eye and he said, we're the military, we can do what we want. For decades, the Canadian government held a campaign to identify, interrogate, and expel LGBTQ plus people from public service. Not just in military operations, though that was a big part of the program, but in any government capacity. Ministry employees, crown agencies, any type of federal employee you could think of. This policy continued from the 1940s until 1988, almost 20 years after homosexuality was decriminalized in Canada. Pierre Trudeau was Prime Minister at the time. This is what he had to say back then in 1969. Take this thing on homosexuality, I think the... The view we take here is that uh, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And I think that, uh, you know, what's done in private between adults uh, doesn't concern the criminal code. Producer and filmmaker Sarah Foti stumbled upon this story while researching a different topic in the early 2000s. She spent the next 16 years investigating what many refer to as Canada's gay purge. Earlier this fall, TVO premiered her documentary, The Fruit Machine, at the Ted Rogers Hot Doc Cinema in Toronto. We caught up with Sarah and Patty Gray, a survivor featured in the film, in a live discussion right after the premiere. Stay tuned for that talk. Just a note, the audio isn't as crisp as it is in studio, but we've cleaned it up for you and we hope you like what you hear. If you guys would just indulge me one question for our podcast listeners who haven't seen the film yet. Uh, Sarah, I'm just going to start by asking you what the fruit machine is. Uh, sure. So the, the fruit machine was uh, devised as a, as a scientific device to detect homosexuality. There wasn't much science behind it, though, was there? No, it was very science-light. The plan was to show basically dirty pictures of, of males in either nude or semi-nude to other males to see if this broadened their pupils. And, and why did you call the film The, the Fruit Machine? I like the title a lot. I, I've always found it a very provocative title. I, I hope on some level the, the audience for this film appreciates that it's, um, it's more of a, a, a metaphor for the, for the larger campaign. Um, so yeah, but I, at its core, I've just always really liked, liked the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you find out about this story? 
this this film is truly a, a labor of love. It's it's been 16 years in the making, and and 16 years ago I was I was following what I thought might be another story, another documentary film. Um, there was a an article in the Ottawa Citizen by um, sorry rather about a man George Hartsgrove, who's now a good friend of mine, who uh, was trying to open the first gay and lesbian retirement home, what would have been the first at that time in Canada. So we met for a coffee. And in the process of, of learning about his story, he said that his business plan was, was going to fail. And I asked why, and he said, well, the same cohort of men and women that I'm now marketing to were the same men and women who had their sexuality driven underground during the fruit machine era. Hmm. And I'd never heard that title or that term, so we had another coffee and another hour-long chat, and, and I was blown away, and it, I became preoccupied with finding out, you know, who these men and women were and, and what happened to them. Uh, I just want to ask, get the audience to answer this one question for me. Raise your hand if you've, if you've never heard of this story before tonight. There's a lot of hands up in the air right now. That's incredible. Um, Patty, how well known is this story? Uh, well, it's certainly getting out there now, but it's uh, still shocking when I mention it to people that I was part of this documentary and that I was purged from the Canadian military, and they're, what are you talking about? So that opens up a whole new uh, dialogue about it and explain the story to them. And yeah. Why did you decide to take part in this film? I, well, I was contacted uh, by somebody I had served with, Diane Pitt, who's also in the movie. Um, Diane contacted me uh, via Facebook and asked me to get involved, and I... I hesitated because I knew it was going to be opening up a lot of pain, a lot of bad memories, uh, but I also thought it would help me heal. And she told me she thought it was important for my voice to be heard as well. Hmm. You said this took 16 years to make? Yes. Why did it take so long? I, I think that the film needed the right political climate to tell this story. Um, and that time did not come along in Canada till about 18 months ago. But I think with the, um, the forming of the We Demand an Apology group, and if no one knows what that, or has never heard that before, I encourage you to Google it and look that up. And the, certainly the, the, the class action lawsuit and the Globe and Mail started to report very frequently um, on this topic. So it became a bit of a perfect storm and, and the right time to, to make the film. When, when you told people you wanted to do this film, what was the reaction that you would get? I think, I think the most common reaction was, was disbelief, um, shock. You know, to underscore your point, I, I think that people just didn't believe that this happened in, in our own country, that, that perhaps this was happening in, in the U.S., which it was, and, and England, which it was. But there, there's always been a resistance to believe that this actually happened in, in Canada. The thing is, it actually did happen, and for nearly 40 years. The reason? In the Cold War era, the federal government believed that being gay was somehow a threat to national security. Security screening was um, introduced in 1948, and uh, that opened the door to just snooping and prying. And the authorities in the West figured 
okay, the KGB is going to start looking for people with secrets to hide. It's like someone, you know, is is um, cheating on their partner. Someone is gambling. I mean, there's a whole bunch of possible ways in which someone could have a character weakness, right, or some sort of addiction. But the one that the Canadian state focuses on is homosexuality. It was the key focus, not just a focus. It was the focus, you see. The Mounties were, like, extremely right-wing, very conservative. And they just had a visceral detestation of homosexuality. And they saw it as a moral failing. Patty, um, I know this was, uh, your story was uh, featured in the film a bit, but just, if you could just tell us a bit about what happened to you, as as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing. Sure. Um, I joined in uh, September of 1979, went through basic training. Uh, I was very well behaved. Uh, I was then posted to Chatham, New Brunswick, and that's where I met several others uh, playing on the on the base fastball team. The first, my very first night on base, uh, I was waiting for the warrant officer to come so, to show me to my room, and I noticed a name up on the board, and I thought, I think that might be the same woman I know. I knew for, I'd met while I was in high school, so sure enough, it was her. We went out for drinks, and um, the next day at work, a master corporal came up to me, and he advised me, you know, very softly, I might want to rethink the people, the person I was spending time with. Um, I would gain a bad reputation from her, from being around her. Was she suspected of being gay? That's why? No, because she, she drank and was promiscuous. I came to find out after I'd been called in, I was called in July of 1980. Um, she told them that if I led on to the SIU, that she had come on to me the second night I was there, that she was going to give the rest of the names of the women on the ball team who were together. You mentioned being followed. In, in the film, it described you know, men with newspapers covering their faces and <laughs> camera poking a hole out. You know, was it anything like that, or was it... Something else. Uh, well, yeah, like they, it was said in the movie, it was, kind of, it was kind of like a really bad movie. I remember uh, our mess was in a basement, and it was dark. And I remember seeing a guy sitting there by himself at a table with sunglasses on, drinking a pop. And I thought, okay, that's kind of weird. But I was told I was being followed, so I had a friend of mine go sit at his table, and I said, I'll go join you in a few minutes. So I went over. Oh, Brian, how you doing? Guy, gone. Um, went to go visit some friends in Halifax. I told them I'm being followed. Oh, you're being paranoid. No, I'm being followed. Oh, no, come on, come on, come on. So off I go to Halifax. The entire drive there, I could see this K car, a nice, reliable, reliable <laughs> automobile. <laughs> see a K car keeping the same distance. And um, even when I stopped to get gas, K car goes by a little bit later. There it is behind me again. Uh, they got called in two days after I left. They know everywhere we were on that weekend. They knew I'd stayed in the barracks. They knew everything. So how did upper management figure out who to call in and why? In the doc, survivors point out criteria that goes from unscientific to at times laughable. What happened then, they said, well, we've got to find out who's, who's gay. They came up with all kinds of indicators. If you wore a pinky ring, that was fairly good indication. If you drove a white convertible, big indication. 
If you go for a beer, you sit on the left. Always go to the left, never go to the right. Like uh, the way you sit or the way you hold your cigarette, you know, you don't want to appear gay or homosexual, so you got to look butch. And I, the one I remember, uh, don't sit with your legs crossed. Um, sit like this. Um, don't talk with your hands. Don't put your hands near your face. My old sergeant, she was told when she first got in the military not to go play sports with the other girls because she would be tagged as a lesbian. Apparently, us lesbians are very sporty. I don't know. And the other one was don't, I couldn't understand this till I thought about it. Don't breast your books. Is when you carry a binder, don't hold it up like over your breast. Carry it at your side like ma'am. But in those days, we had to be careful. You know, you didn't want to appear fifi. <laughs> in the film, it says, you know, people would try to quote unquote pass as straight. Did you ever try to do that? Like, were you hiding your, your identity in any, any way? Um, I had male friends. I wasn't dating anybody. Um, I do think they had a hard time believing uh, when I was first called in. My major said, tell them you can change. Um, I wasn't. I, I do think they didn't really think I was a lesbian. I don't think I fit the profile at that time, what they thought a lesbian was. Because I hung out with some guys because I had fun with them. I had a friend who taught me how to ride a motorcycle. But that's all they were. They were just friends. But I think that may have confused them a bit. I wasn't doing it on purpose. <laughs> but you did play baseball. Oh, yes, I did. I was one of the sporty girls. <laughs> Wait, what position? Um, I was, actually, I was an outfielder at that time. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Um, Sarah, how, how, Sarah, how does this, uh, the fruit machine fit within the larger story of the military's relationship with the LGBTQ community? That's a big one. Um, <laughs> you know, this film is, is very new. It's about to be broadcast on your network, as you know. So it might be too early in the conversation to really appreciate the, you know, a, a fulsome answer to that. Um, I, I think for me, um, in making this film and, and meeting all of these amazing men and women, um, I, I think it's just a matter of if, if the film can contribute to a, a national dialogue regarding discrimination and the othering of minorities, then I will be content some of the survivors' stories were deeply personal. Being interrogated like that and unable to tell their families clearly had a big impact on their lives. I became homeless. I had no money. I couldn't come back to Ontario. And then I found that the only way that my family will accept me is if I marry my old girlfriend. So I married my girlfriend. And we had a family. That, uh, that only lasted a little while. I was okay. But I'm gay. I'm not a straight man. When it came to talking to people and getting them to open up about their stories, what, what was that experience like? How did you get them to reveal these very personal stories about their, their time in 
the military and in the public sector? I, I think it was just an exercise in, in, in getting to know them first and foremost and, and making it clear that they knew that I wasn't the media, that I wasn't looking to exploit them in any way, shape or form, that I was really looking to capture their authentic stories. So really it was just um, a, a devotion of, of time, meeting with them, talking to them on the phone and, and making sure that they were comfortable in, in participating because it, it takes a lot of courage to, to go on camera and, and tell any kind of story, let alone um, a story like this. Was there anyone that uh, turned you down or was afraid to come on? Yes, we, we did have a number of stories, very provocative stories, stories that I, I would still love to have included in the film. Uh, there were many other consequences to this campaign that, that are not in the film. Um, and then as well on the, on the uh, RCMP and the SIU side, we, we did try to secure voices from, from that side of the story, but uh, no one would come forward. Do you know why? Well, I, I think, understandably, there's a certain level of, of shame associated to what they were doing. Um, but I, I've always been curious, and I will always be curious, um, as to whether they believed in what they were doing or, or whether, like soldiers and like public service you know, personnel, they were simply acting out a job. Of, you know, they were themselves employees of the government. Patty, uh, there were a few people asked in the film, uh, just, you know, would they go back in the Army if they could? Would you go back? If I could go back and be as fit as I was? Absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I did think about it. If, probably if I had not gotten back into Bell Canada for the third time, um, I, I may have. Because I enjoyed the time. The, the camaraderie that you built with people, everybody, that everybody talks about, it was there. It was real. Very real. Did it shape your, did what you experienced um, shape your opinion of, of the Canadian government or the Canadian military at all? Not the government. I always believed, I've always believed in my country. Uh, I have always believed, and this film reaffirmed it for me, that it was a very small group of small-minded individuals that were just out to get a minority, out of fear. Uh, to say that we could be blackmailed when they said that to me and I asked them why they were doing this well because you could be blackmailed and I it was how can you blackmail me when my entire family already knows Sarah it struck me while watching the film um, that these were patriots these were people who really wanted to serve their country and I, I think many of them still feel that way why is that I, I don't believe they've ever lost that that devotion you know, that nationalism, you know, you, you feel that just from Patty sitting here. Uh, and it's remarkable to me, and, and it was very surprising to me. And that's why I definitely wanted to include that. Their reactions to their willingness and their openness to, to return to service is, uh, you know, I'm not sure if, if I went through this, whether I would share that same kind of um, utter devotion. Um, so, yeah, it was surprising. It is with shame and sorrow and deep regret for the things we have done that I stand here today and say we were wrong, we apologize, I am sorry, we are sorry. To me, the apology from Justin Trudeau meant the world to me. Just to hear it said out loud, 
with such vindication. Um, I know not everybody feels the same, and I appreciate that. We all have different levels of pain. We have different, different ways to heal. But to hear it said out loud, to hear it acknowledged that it was wrong, that, that meant everything to me. And you were there for the apology, yes. right? Yes. How was that? Oh, it was amazing. It was emotional. It was, um, oh, it, it ran the gamut of every emotion. Um, there was a lots of tears, lots of cheering. It was pretty incredible. And Sarah, I mean, there seemed to be a split uh, amongst the group people you interviewed about um, the apology. Some were for it, some were not. Why is there this, I guess, difference of opinion on, you know, why, on the government's apology? I think that would have to be appreciated on a on a person by person basis. I mean, as you could get a sense for in the film, the the consequences for each individual person varied greatly, and I think that would inform their position on whether an apology would was sufficient enough or even even welcomed. Um, so I think that's why you see that kind of diversity amongst amongst the survivors. <laughs> been um, we certain government agencies have reached out to us to bring the film into their organizations uh, the government of Canada at the highest level which is really uh, encouraging as well as the Canadian Armed Forces which is also surprising but encouraging and the the small government agency that we're presenting to tomorrow is actually CSIS and that was also very surprising so I feel like many many of the Agencies and organizations that were once behind this purge campaign are actually coming, you know, they're doing a bit of a 180 and, and they're actually uh, opening, you know, themselves up to this film to bring it in, to use it as some kind of a training and diversity tool. So I'm very encouraged by that. Well, we look forward to seeing this film grow and, and be spread out to all these different agencies and for young, young people and old people to see it alike. It was a great experience uh, watching it, and I really want to thank you for, for making this film. And thank, thank you, you, Patty. And that's the podcast. You can find The Fruit Machine streaming online at tvo.org. Join us next week for a brand new filmmaker on a brand new doc. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, tell a friend. Want to get in touch? Write us at ondocs at tvo.org, and follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producers Chantal Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinator Caitlin Plummer. Our podcast manager is Hannah Sung. Big thanks to all the people at TVO behind the scenes who make this show possible. We could not do this without you. I mean it. We really could not do this show without you. So thank you. And we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>